break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here in The Punch-Out, 22nd of April, 2022, 4-22-22. We're very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about a fisherman strike in Saudi Arabia and what that means for the eastern region of that country. We're going to be talking about an important anniversary in terms of racial bias and the death penalty here in the United States. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the issue of Honduras, where very important changes have been taking place since a very important election last year. Last year's Honduran presidential elections historically overturned the results of a 2009 coup, returning the left-leaning Libre Party, led by Giomar Castro, to power after her party had been forcibly removed from the political scene just over a decade prior. The victory for the Libre Party raised hope around the world that Honduras was yet another Latin American nation moving in the direction of social justice and away from the failed neoliberal models that have wreaked havoc in Central and South America. And events of the past week do seem to herald that change is in the air in terms of the direction of the nation of Honduras, even amid various contradictions and challenges. The biggest news in the international media was Thursday's extradition of the most recent past president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, to the United States to stand trial over accusations of his involvement in drug trafficking. Hernandez, known by his initials Joe, was notoriously corrupt, implicated for years in drug trafficking cases in the United States, and pushed through policies essentially selling off the country's land and minerals to the highest bidder. His policies, however, created a major political problem for the United States as migrants streamed out of Honduras trying to seek a life better than the bleak existence Joe was promoting for most of the people living in the country. The U.S. government has gone out of its way to turn on Joe almost immediately after the election, as well as playing nice with Castro and Libre, a major change from backing a coup against the party in 2009. The U.S. move was an implicit acknowledgement that the only way to address the migrant crisis was to support sustainable development and respect the rights of indigenous and Afro-descendant people in Honduras, and that that sort of agenda could only be put in place by the Libre Party. While Joe won't stand trial for his role in the many crimes against Honduran social activists in particular that his administration is responsible for, his extradition and arrest are a powerful affirmation that the struggles of the Honduran people are shaping a new reality for the country. And further indicative of this fact was a unanimous vote by the Honduran Congress overnight on Wednesday to repeal the law that allowed special economic zones to exist, and this was a favored policy of Joe. These zones were given significant autonomy from many laws and taxes in Honduras and were essentially just a corporate free-for-all where international corporations in particular could come in and exploit the labor and resources of Hondurans. And for that, these zones were widely hated by popular organizations and the masses of working people and peasants. 
Further, the zones were part of a more wide-ranging program of stealing land from indigenous and Afro-descendant communities for corporate profit. The Honduran legislature also passed a constitutional reform that has to be approved next year to eliminate the zones that already exist. One of the biggest post-election questions in Honduras was how President Castro would be able to work with Congress, which still contained significant right-wing influence. And the unanimous nature of the vote on the special economic zones suggests she may be able to wield influence around her agenda, despite her governing coalition being a few seats short of a majority. Libre has also started a process to attempt to ban open pit mining, made positive representations acknowledging the theft of land from the Afro-descendant Garfuna population, and they have also repealed a number of anti-transparency laws that facilitated dictatorial governing. However, as the convergence against continuity, a coalition of social movements is noted, corruption continues to be a major issue, and they also point to the lack of a comprehensive security policy and also the lack of real dialogue with social movements on how to implement transformative policies. While stating clearly that they maintain support for President Castro, the convergence has also noted with concern the seeming closeness of the new government with the United States, warning against embracing any sort of U.S.-led security initiative that militarizes Honduras. And further, organizations of the Garfuna people that are fighting for the rights of Afro-descendants have noted that despite positive acknowledgement of the existence of land grabs in their territory, much work remains to actually address the issue. Social movements are calling for this week to be a week of mobilizations to continue to bring forth the popular demands that ultimately powered Libre to victory. Overall, then, while there is much to be done in a very challenging social situation, Honduras's landmark electoral victory of last year is clearly a step forward for small-D democracy in the Americas and movements for transformative change in Honduras and the rest of the continent. <laughs> Today is the anniversary of the 1987 McCleskey v. Kemp ruling by the Supreme Court, a ruling where the court basically said it does not matter how racist the death penalty is, that racist application of the law is not enough to declare a death sentence unconstitutional. As the Pulitzer Prize-winning court chronicler Anthony Lewis said at the time, the court had, quote, effectively condoned the expression of racism in a profound aspect of our law, end quote. The distinguished jurist Anthony Amsterdam added that the decision was, quote, the Dred Scott decision of our time. Justice Lewis Powell would later say it was the only decision in which he wished he could change his opinion. The case hinged on one of the most pernicious aspects of the death penalty in the U.S., that you are more likely to be executed if you are a black person that killed a white person than any other combination of factors, despite the fact that the number of black murder victims is greater than the number of whites. Warren McCleskey, appealing his death sentence back in 87, presented something that has become known as the Baldus study of the death penalty in Georgia. As the Death Penalty Information Center summarizes, the Baldus study was, quote, a sophisticated statistical analysis of data from more than 2,500 murder cases in Georgia that showed individuals who killed a white victim were far more likely to be sentenced to death than other defendants, and that the odds that McCleskey would be sentenced to death were 4.3 times greater because he was black and the man he was convicted of killing was white, end quote. The court ruled, however, that this did not matter at all. And unless McCleskey could present what they called a particularized, quote unquote, claim of racial bias, he could not claim his death sentence violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This is, of course, absurd because the exact point of these sorts of analyses that were done by Baldus, they're known as disparate impact studies, is to reveal how seemingly race neutral choices are, in fact, the result of deliberate racial bias. 
since prosecutors choose who gets the death penalty. Clearly, if they choose death the most in cases of blacks killing whites, they are making a distinct value judgment that this is the most heinous of crimes, which makes the death sentence highly particularized. Just being black means they are more likely to try to kill you and that other mitigating factors will not be as heavily considered. Again, how could you get more quote-unquote particularized than that? The court deliberately meant, though, to raise the bar very high, more or less making it so that unless the prosecutor was in the Klan and discussed killing you specifically in the Clavern meeting, specifically because you were black, that it doesn't really count as racial bias, ultimately closing the door on a powerful argument against the death penalty. Even more notable scholars who have revisited the facts of the case since have found that Baldus actually understated how bad it was. A recent review found that, in fact, in Georgia, rather than 4.3 times, you were 17 times more likely to be sentenced to death if you were a black person killing a white person. And while the case has been widely panned in years since, the precedent still stands. And using racist treatment as an argument against a death sentence is still a very difficult burden for defendants to meet. As you might imagine, that means the death penalty continues to be disproportionately issued to black people in general and black people for killing white people. Just another reason. It should be abolished. Last Sunday, news slipped out from behind a media blackout that fishermen in the Saudi Arabian city of Katif had gone on strike to, quote, defend their livelihoods. As the news site People's Dispatch noted, quote, reports stated that Katif's famous fish market imposed a variety of additional fees and other costs on fishermen, including loading charges, surcharge on every individual fish sale, and other taxes. The fishermen claim that the new tariffs will negatively impact business and increase the retail prices for customers, and this may lead to an overall decline in sales, end quote. People's Dispatch goes on to further note that, quote, the charges were introduced suddenly in an arbitrary fashion. The government provided no explanation for the move and did not take the fishermen community into consultation before announcing the new fees, end quote. The strike is particularly notable in that it takes place in the eastern regions of Saudi Arabia. The east is a major oil center of the country, but the population, which is heavily Shia, are highly marginalized and discriminated against. The ruling house of Saad follows an ideology that is viciously hostile to Shia Muslims, who they see also as a fifth column of Iran inside of Saudi Arabia and a potential vector for the growth of a political Islam that could dethrone the monarchy. As such, protests in the East often have a joint economic-slash-religious type of character and almost always meet with significant repression. When Saudi Arabia executed 81 people in one day this past March, 41 of those executed were Shia, and most of them were accused of essentially political crimes. How the fishermen strike will end up is yet to be seen, but one thing is for sure, it won't be terribly easy to find out, as the Saudis always go out of their way to suppress any news of Eastern unrest in the global media. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.